right, excellent. So, uh, on a day of many thresholds, time goes on. And um, it's, it's my special pleasure uh, to introduce our final speaker, uh, Kelly Hunter, who is, is, or you probably know, is, is a highly accomplished actress of stage, film, television, and radio. And she's been directed by uh, Peter Hall and, and Trevor Nunn, uh, and has been in several RSC National Theatre and BBC productions, and numerous awards. Uh, and um, well, it's, well, most intriguingly for us, she's now doing this uh, she, her, her own adaptation on uh, we'll call it Hamlet Brusere. Mm -hmm which we had a very interesting talking about the, the first line of the play. Um, and if you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's on uh, 24th and 25th of April yes, in London. Indeed. Yes, and please do go see it. It's also in Colchester. Yeah, please yes, please do. Uh, it's on uh, Colchester, 20th, 20th, 21st? Uh, so Colchester on the 14th and 15th, 14th and then 15th. Romania, if any of you are in Romania between Colchester and London. And then if you miss it, then we're playing in Germany and Spain and Combo Castle and Elsinore in August. So. Yeah, and, yeah. and she, she, she's the um, artistic director of the Flute Theatre. And one, one of the very intriguing things, which I, I might pick her brain, at a later date and a, later, uh, a different topic, uh, she's um, created and taught this uh, distinctive methodology, the, the Hunter Heartbeat Method, which uh, uh, was... Um, uses uh, Shakespeare to release the communicative blocks uh, with chil uh, children with autism. Mm -hmm. And this is Shakespeare's heartbeat. Uh, your, yeah. your book is, is, yes. is based on this. And this is being researched at Ohio State. Yes. And this fantastic idea. Also, my, my uh, pleasure has been to read her uh, uh, latest book, Cracking Shakespeare, which is a cracking book, I have to say. <laughs> uh, and it's, for me, it's been, as uh, spoke to voice, it's intriguing for, for an academic to get this sort of insight mm. from a professional uh, who's been this, you know, uh, so much experience about just think to get more substance and body around the words that uh, I work on. So, uh, well, without further ado, please uh, welcome uh, Kelly Hunter. Hi, hi. That was a, a marvelous introduction. I'm gonna. Hire Timo, I think, to introduce me wherever I go. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about this this show that I have uh, created. To be honest, uh, and there's no point in being in anything else. Um, uh, this 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 production of Hamlet is carved out of my soul. Really, um, it's a it has been more than a labour of love. It's it's really been something that. When I began, I had no idea uh, where the journey would take me. I knew kind of what I wanted, but everything that has befallen me in my life, be it um, wonderful and joyous or, or, or tragic and, and grief-stricken, I've, I've poured into this production of Hamlet. So I'll take you through how that happened and how we made a production that is 90 minutes long has a sofa and a drum kit for its set, has six actors, 
and lasts only the night of Gertrude and Claudius's wedding, and yet feels like an entire and well-explored production of Hamlet. And it's an interesting story. It's interesting because it actually began here, in this building uh, at the Rose Theatre in Kingston. Two and a half years ago, 2013, October. Uh, so as Timo said, I work as an actor and a director. And I was acting at that time in a production of Ghosts that was produced by English Touring Theatre and the Rose Theatre in Kingston. Uh, on the main stage here. Uh, playing Mrs. Alvin. Obviously, nightly going through the, uh, the suicide pact that Mrs. Alvin um, experiences with her son, Oswald. And about three weeks into the run, my youngest son, who was then 16, suffered a terrible bereavement. His best friend died. He didn't wake up one morning, had a massive heart attack. Um, and I heard that news on my uh, phone. Somebody called me up and told me this terrible, terrible news at about 7 o'clock, just before we were about to perform downstairs. I received this terrible news. I was completely in shock for this boy who I'd known very well. Uh, grief took hold. I turned my phone off, looked up, and standing in front of me was him, Mark Courtney, who played Oswald in Ghosts. And he was in my dressing room going, what is the matter? Because I kind of cried out. So I told him what had happened. And we shared this news. And truly what happened was a kind of transference of grief between one person telling someone else this terrible news. We then went on stage 20 minutes later and we played out the story of Mrs. Alvin and her son and the suicide pact and the son wanting the mother to kill him at the end of Ghosts. Those of you, I'm sure, most of you know Ghosts by Ibsen. Um, and some deeper, if you like, transference of grief occurred between the two of us. The days and the weeks and the months rolled on the funeral, as you can imagine, was a, 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 a very particular and, 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 and devastating affair, a funeral of a, a 16-year-old boy. My son suffered terribly and grieved for his friend. And I felt that and kept continuing doing this play. And I became very, very conscious and interested in the transference of grief. And for me, Hamlet, the play, Shakespeare's play is entirely about the transference of grief between people who are close to one another. How that ghost infects Hamlet and then everybody else who he comes into contact with gets infected, whether they are guilty of the crime of fratricide or whether they are the most innocent young girl who happens to be in love with Hamlet. Somehow that poison, that infection of grief gets rolled from one person to the next. So I harboured this notion of a production of Hamlet that would encompass and focus on this transference of grief. And we toured the play for about three or four months, um, never having quite recovered from that big shock. So doing the play every night felt hotter and harder than it, than it would have done if the, if the real-life events hadn't happened. But Mark and I started talking about a production of Hamlet that might 
where we might be able to channel all of this stuff that we've been experiencing. Previously, I directed Hamlet twice already, both uh, with American students and a production at Mount Fuji Drama School with an all-female cast, in fact. So I knew the play very well, and I wanted to get back in, in touch with it. And I, by this time, had my own theatre company. So we started work on the play, and we devised uh, a notional idea that we would start to work on Hamlet the play, just the two of us working on what Hamlet says, just the soliloquies, as the spine of a production, nothing else, just what is inside his head. So the other thing that was fascinating me was the idea of the divided self. So R.D. Lang's book, The Divided Self, is one of my favourite well-thumbed books that I have by my bed. I very much like that book. I've always been really interested in it. So with that in mind, we set about an exploration, just the two of us in a rehearsal room and on trains and in coffee shops, uh, going through the seven soliloquies, the seven revelations of Hamlet, focusing on the divided self. And we wanted to make a Hamlet that he and I, Mark and I, could come back to. So it would never be a production whereby we rehearsed for an intense period, opened it to the critics, some people came to see it, and then we never did it again, which is, as a theatre professional, that's what normally happens with a, a Shakespeare production. You do it, uh, some people like it, some people don't, and then you have to time. We didn't really want to do that. We wanted to have something that we could own and that would develop uh, as we changed as people and as we grew. So we took our time, and I was very, very keen on that. I've been working in theatre for so long, and I know that sometimes if you're rushed into things, you never really make the most of the opportunity and privilege of being within these worlds. So we took our time and we developed these seven soliloquies. He's gone. <laughs> He'll come back. Um, and after quite a few months of just working on them, we started to think about who we needed to add in, which characters we needed to add in to make our story work. Firstly, we thought we might just do a one-man show, but I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to make the play of Hamlet. And I knew that I wanted it to last just over that one night. So start at midnight with him in his bedroom and finish up in the dawn, outside, exterior, with a grave digger. So we asked ourselves the questions of who is essential to this experience. And this is really key. So we never cut Hamlet by Shakespeare. We never had the full text and went, oh, well, we don't need Horatio, we don't need the spear carrier, we don't need that political bit. We never edited it down. What we did is start with just the words that Hamlet says, which felt like a full experience already, and then we added in, we started to add in. So we never felt like we were missing anything or anybody. We always felt like we were adding in to the experience of being Hamlet. So we added in Ophelia. She had to be there. We added in Gertrude. We added in Claudius. And for a while we just stayed there. We put those key scenes in so that Hamlet would speak what he was feeling but then react against those three protagonists. Then we put in Laertes, and then we put in Polonius, and then we needed a grave digger. And that was it. That was all we actually felt that we needed. So we had six actors, 
I had an idea, which I'll tell you in a minute, about Polonius becoming the grave digger toward the end. But what we never wanted to do was actors kind of swapping hats and playing different people. We needed it to feel, this is crucial to this show, like it was a very natural world. Because we'd met doing an Ibsen play, and the experience of doing Ibsen is very different to doing Shakespeare, although you're dealing with this large and emotional landscape, you don't have the rigour and the discipline of the verse to keep you going. So in Ibsen you have space. Ibsen literally, as we know, tore up verse, said I'm tearing it up and giving space to the actors and let people breathe and be silent on stage. And I wanted to make a show where it felt like being in an Ibsen play from an acting point of view and from an audience point of view. So we had an inner spatial time to live with those people on stage. But you had the rigour and the discipline of Shakespeare's verse. So where the, the words are literally crashing down wave after wave on the beach of the language. So this mixture of feeling like you were in the naturalism of Ibsen with the rigour of, dis of discipline of, of Shakespeare was, was uh, what we wanted to create, which was quite exciting. So... We added our five actors in, and uh, it felt a little bit like being attacked for Mark and I at first, because we got so used to just the two of us owning these words that Hamlet said, and then we brought these other actors in, and they were good colleagues, and we started to create the show together. We initially, as well, added one more thing, which was the ghost is Hamlet. So Hamlet is possessed, as it were, as if haunted by the ghost of his father. And it comes to him almost like an epileptic fit. So very, very early on in the play, he's on his own on the sofa. And this, I am my father's spirit, do me for a certain time to walk the night, comes out of him. And the whole of the ghost soliloquy is spoken by him as if he's haunted by this. We'd watched uh, a very brilliant documentary by Louis Theroux called um, Who's Written Sanity, where Louis Theroux went into Ohio State um, Mental Asylum and interviewed schizophrenics and people who'd been visited uh, by spirits and been told to commit murders and had done so. And we were very, very taken with that. We took that as a, as a, a real starting point. And the fragility that a lot of those people spoke with was a, was a real starting point for us, for our Hamlet, how they were absolutely sure that they'd been visited by spirits who had told them of terrible things that other people had done and told them to go and take revenge, just exactly as Hamlet is visited by his father. So that was something that was a, a good trigger for us. I, I'm, I, was, I am uh, interested in how you bring these plays to the stage for a 21st century audience. Um, without losing the essence of the plays, but by properly be allowing yourself to be influenced by uh, certainly the, the last hundred years of um, existence for human beings. So that documentary was very useful for us in terms of this ghost and the visitation of the ghost. And then obviously when Hamlet is visited by his father the second time in the presence of his mother, the same thing happens. The ghost's voice comes from him and the possession happens, this time for the mother, 
she sees and hears a perfect replication of her dead husband through her son right in front of her. So that has a direct effect on her. And one of the patients that had been interviewed by Louis Theroux had entered his mother's bedroom with a knife and violated his mother. Hamlet enters his mother's bedroom with a weapon. In our play, our Hamlet is not someone who has a dagger already. He's, we're not in a play of, of weaponry. In our play, it feels like he's run to the kitchen, picked up a carving knife and run back. So he just picks up something that he could kill somebody with. So it's as frightening to him to hold a weapon as it is to the people around him. We were very interested in the uh, Prince Dependra of Kathmandu, who in 2001, he was the royal prince of uh, Nepal, and he murdered his entire family, took him four and a half minutes, nine people, and then shot himself in the head. He was named the Hamlet of Kathmandu by the press at the time. Extraordinary story. Absolutely extraordinary. He'd been educated at Eton, in fact. Um, not at that meeting, <laughs> but he had. And he had gone back to Kathmandu, he'd suffered depression, and he'd heard voices, apparently, and then he uh, slaughtered his entire family. So that was also in our heads as we invented this, this story about how quickly things could escalate. If you just, and with our play, if you just go to the essence of it. Um, so if we compressed the time scale, we needed to solve quite a few things narratively to keep the story going uh, without losing the thrust of the, the main story. I'd watched an extraordinary film called Night Will Fall, which is a documentary about the Holocaust, uh, specifically documenting the camera crews who had gone into the concentration camps as they were being liberated. Amazing. They shot hours and hours of footage, which was then deemed unreleasable. And in fact, the producers employed Alfred Hitchcock to put together a, a, a cut of it, which he did, but even that was unreleasable. So this footage hasn't been seen until very recently. What they mainly shot was the piles of bodies, piles of dead bodies, um, at the bottom of which were many people who were still alive and to save themselves had pretended to be dead. Because of the, the, these people understood that liberation had come, there's footage of them crawling out from underneath these piles of bodies, which these camera crews, albeit very shaky, were, were filming. This is a remarkable thing. And it struck me as, it stayed with me, and it struck me the question of whether you could stay sane lying underneath the body of your loved one. Because it's not just any of the bodies, these are the bodies of your family. Um, in our show, I guess this idea had uh, stayed in my head. In our show, Ophelia hides behind our one bit of furniture, which is the sofa, halfway through the play, because she's scared of Hamlet. And Polonius then hides behind the sofa in, the, in what we have as a closet scene. Polonius doesn't know that Ophelia is there. Polonius gets killed. He falls down behind the sofa. He ends up lying on top of his daughter. She stays there absolutely petrified with her dead father on her, on her back. And then when Hamlet leaves, she crawls out from underneath the... Uh, sofa with the body of her dead father on her back who sort of rolls off and she's gone she's divided from herself she's mad so the 
the events of the play and Hamlet's pressure on her has gone a long way toward making her mad, but there's uh, this, this other resonance of uh, the physical act of these murders happening in this tiny space that then turns her mad. And something I'm quite proud of in that uh, in our adaptation is that is that we're able to bring in these different elements from the 20th century into uh, what might drive something mad. Bye, merci. Hope you get your train. Um, there's one other character, if you like, in our play, which is a box of photographs. So. Uh, at the beginning of the play, Hamlet has a, uh, an old cardboard box and it has photographs from his family that he has clearly been given. This was something that, that actually came from my own life. When my own father died, uh, I was given a box of photographs. I never actually had known my own dad. So I was given a box of pictures by his then widow um, and sat on my own in my bedroom after his, the funeral of a man who I'd never known and kind of opened them up and looked at this stuff, at this life of somebody who is, I was I, this man's daughter and I didn't know him. And without a doubt something exploded uh, for me emotionally and intellectually in my mind and my heart. And I wanted to uh, let that be an impulse for Hamlet at the beginning of our play. What then transpired is, is this idea of photographs, which is quite key, it would seem, in Shakespeare's play, or certainly pictures. Um, so Hamlet at the beginning of our show is looking at these photographs of, of a man he didn't know. He throws and hurls all the photographs at his mother in the closet scene in order to search for the picture of his father and his uncle to show her, because Shakespeare asks that he says, look here upon this picture and on this. So the idea of pictures is very, very key. Um, when Ophelia crawls out from behind her sofa, she too tries to piece together all these photographs. And Claudius says of her, for Ophelia divided from herself in her fair judgment, without which we are but pictures or mere beasts, this idea that, that, that the picture is, is, is flat. And then when our grave digger whips up the stage and changes the setting to the graveyard, he, with a blanket, whips the photographs like a storm. So our whole stage gets covered in these photographs that had emerged from the box. So, we are, so our graveyard is a graveyard of photographs. So we are just looking at endless stories lying on the ground. Polonius plays the grave digger. So Polonius is lying dead on the ground at the end of the, the long closet scene and Ophelia's mad scene, Ophelia has died, the stage is spare and Polonius simply sits up and becomes the grave digger, um, puts on a hood, whips the photographs and then when Hamlet comes back to the graveyard, what's really interesting is uh, we were very keen, we were very, very full of belief that Hamlet would just see Polonius no matter he went. He'd killed a man in cold blood, it was a mistake, he didn't mean to do that. And whoever he looked at seemed as if they were Polonius. So in our play, he comes back and there's a grave digger, but it looks like Polonius. And time starts shifting. Shakespeare's use of time in that fourth act of Hamlet, is, uh, which we've cut out very, very narrowly, 
is uh, dubious, as everyone knows. There's a big joke in the world of theatre that if Shakespeare had sent in Hamlet to the National Theatre Literary Department, they'd have sent it back saying, work on Act 4, because it's so, it doesn't have a, a good line towards it. It makes no sense. Um, the poetry of it is, is, is what's interesting, not the narrative scheme. So, toward the end of the play, Hamlet is, doesn't know what, where he is, what day it is, or who anybody is. So we really use the fact that we have our Polonius and our grave digger, uh, and who is he, and who is anybody. And to that end, the fact that it's called Hamlet who's there, he's endlessly asking who's there. Uh, it seems that the, the, that question is, is, is an existential question that carries us all the way through. So there's, there's one other thing that we had to solve narratively, which is how on earth to make the story work do you get Claudius to uh, reveal his guilt? Big, big thing. I mean, in Shakespeare's play, you've got the players and you've got all of the player king and um, the whole mousetrap, etc. In our play, we don't have any of that because we gave ourselves this task of not having anybody else coming into our story. So the final uh, bit of... Uh, they're all films, my influences. The final uh, remarkable film that was a big influence was The Act of Killing by um, Oppenheimer that uh, won an Oscar a couple of years ago. Incredible film, I don't know if any of you have seen it. Documentary about the, uh, uh, the murderous criminals of Indonesia who um, reenacted their terrible crimes again and again for this filmmaker. Uh, where they all wore kind of gangsters' costumes because that's what they'd, how they'd dressed up when they'd murdered all the innocent people of 30-odd years ago. So they endlessly acted out these murders, thinking that that was going to give them some uh, agency. And in doing so, their guilt started creeping up on them in this incredible way. And at the end of the movie, the protagonist, the main criminal is, is belching like a dog, retching like this bilious animal. Amazing. When I very first saw that, I, I thought to myself that that's what our Claudius or my Claudius would do if ever I did it. So in fact, that's what we do have Claudius doing, is he retches like a dog. So what we did is make um, Claudius act out the murder. Hamlet gets out of Shakespeare's language for about three or four minutes and he makes the family sit down, close their eyes and play a game of mafia. Uh, you know the game where you have to close your eyes and guess who the murderer is? So they all have to close their eyes. He kisses one of them on the forehead, he kisses Claudius. They wake up, they have to choose who the murderer is. He says, it's my uncle. And he lies down and he makes him pour an imaginary poison into his ear. At which point he snaps, can't bear the game anymore. And it works very well. So again, something solved in that we don't need, you don't need all the device that Shakespeare needed in order to tell that bit of story. So we, uh, to put a, 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 a sort of end to the, um, the, the narrative of how we made this, all of that creativity uh, to make our play happened over about a year. And then last summer we took it to the Gdansk Shakespeare Festival and performed it for one night in August to a packed audience. We, didn't, we thought about 20 people would turn up, but because it's an international festival, they'd come anyway, and it didn't matter who we were. So we, played, we made our world premiere in front of a huge 
thrown the seat in. Amazing theatre. Um, most of us, I play Gertrude, most of us were still wearing our own clothes. It was quite kind of rock and roll, uh, and yet had so much heart and time spent on it that it was rock and roll in the best way things can be, and very, very focused in the, the way that things should be. And because of that success, we've now are booked into playing it at Noyce, at the Globe Noyce, and at Cronberg Castle in Denmark, and at the Alcala Festival in Spain, and we're going to Romania to play the Craiova Festival in a couple of weeks' time, and we're doing it for a few shows in London, and a couple of shows in Colchester and Essex. It's interesting how the European scene, as it were, have become very interested in this show that we've invented. Um, there's a, a British theatre scene, which I'm, I've spent all of my life working in, which is very conservative and isn't really even interested in, in what this might be or what a, what a project or a, or a creative um, uh, task this might be. So I'm slightly uh, maverick in making this show and I'm delighted that it works and delighted that the European theatre scene are interested in it. It will be interesting to see how it goes in London and Colchester. Uh, and I think I'll leave it there and open it up for questions. Yeah, I'll leave it there and open it up for questions. Thank you. Well, um, Dave uh, wants to uh, as well maybe you know, have it as, as open as, as we do, but I, I want to just what we've been talking today about mm. is sort of it, it struck me in, in a way when you were fleshing out in this, in this sort of uh, very practical terms of what we've been talking about this uh, the threshold between other people and, and just kind of physical spaces. Mm. And um, I was wondering, I was wondering um, when you're playing Gertrude, how do you, uh, on stage, how does that um, work? Shared grief mm -hmm. in a way, uh, because it's Gertrude is it, 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 sort of intriguing character. It is just uh, losing a husband, regaining another. This this type of odd movement or moment, and, and I was struck by when you talk about the, the sharing of grief, the sort of uh, kind of affective theory in which in, in which bodies uh, move each other. Yes. It's a bit like the early uh, early modern. Ancient theory spirits, where, where which animate the body. This yes. is this is sort of the emotion that goes from one body to another. And I was wondering how, how does that because how, how does that in, in to Gertrude work? Mm. That's a fantastic question uh, because it's so specific to this play and to these particular characters. So at the beginning of the play, our Gertrude and Claudius are are wrapped up in each other physically. We're dancing quite drunk, quite kind of uh, bacchanalian feast style. It's the end of the wedding. We've had a fantastic day. There is a, there's a real joy and sexuality in these two people. Um, and physically, they are, they are as one. Mother and father are about one. So uh, then when they go into Hamlet's room, her aliveness, if you like, her erotic self, um, sits bang next to Hamlet, and she's hot. She's she's very very awake, 
and something in him has decided to close off. And we have, it's so interesting you ask that, because we've invented this thing where I, I sit kind of on the sofa like this, and I just push my toes into him, almost unconsciously, because I'm so alive with my wedding and the idea of this new husband, and everything is kind of happening, and it freaks out the young man. The last thing the young man wants is to be in the presence of his erotically awake wife. And that's what's written at the beginning of the play. Is he's he talks about the incestuous sheets. He talks about all of that, that how it makes his flesh just crawl. So we investigate that. So we, we really give I give Mark the the full experience of the older woman who later he says you know at your age the 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 blood is tame. You shouldn't be having sex. I think is what Hamlet is saying to his mother. Um, so so. What you want to do as a, as a theatre maker is explore what the very specifics are um, between one body and another body that come from the words which give you the situation and then you completely embody it and take it to, to the, uh, not an extreme for the sake of it, but you take it to the point at which you're turning the heat up pretty much full. And in our place, certainly, that, that's something I wanted to explore. Very often in Shakespeare's Hamlet, you don't get that feeling from the Gertrudes and the Claudias because they're so wrapped up in playing kings and queens and status and politics that you don't reveal what it's like to be them. And in my version, in this particular version, I'm just not interested in the fact that they're kings and queens, but interested rather in the fact that they are people. And what are those, what is that mother? unconsciously doing to her son and how does that feel weirdly you then read king and queen and prince if you want to that's that's because it's so endemic in the language and then in the closet scene we've we've marked through so carefully and, and kind of um, endlessly the points at which the grief can be shared but more to the point with hamlet and his mother where they miss being able to share it what you feel is that is that at any one point, if only they could actually listen to each other or properly engage with each other and share the grief of the father stroke husband who is dead, but they never do. They just get a, uh, a, 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 a series of points at which they miss each other and therefore feel even more antagonised by each other. Only when she says, that has cleft my heart in twain, broken my heart, and finally breaks down because he said, this is your fault, this isn't my madness. Do they share some uh, real understanding of what's happened? But by then, it's too late. So you absolutely get, if it's directed well or if it's acted well, you get a flow of movement mm. that is psychological and physical and emotional, and you have to kind of wave, wave your way through it. Yeah. So we through the line. Yeah. Is it that she never actually loved King Hamlet, or that she was already having an affair and desiring Claudius before Hamlet, or some distortion of mourning, or something else? What it, is with your Okay, it's not number two. It's mm -hmm. not the affair. Mm -hmm. It's definitely. I, I, we, we've explored all of these, and, it, and we, we've all landed on it. It's not an affair. That doesn't 
that I do believe that, that Shakespeare writes what you need to know and nothing in the text gives you a fair. I think the interesting and unpalatable thing is that she did love husband, number one. He was very rarely there. He was a warrior, he was away, he was an absent father for Hamlet. So she had all the trappings of that castle and being a queen, but wasn't necessarily fulfilled as a woman. And I know just being sexually, but, I, but, but as a person, wasn't, wasn't loved, didn't have the day-to-day -day loving. And then the brother sweeps her off her feet. So in that I, sense, then, she was already mourning the loss of her husband if he wasn't around. That's good, yeah, she yeah. She had already yeah. done a long period of mourning, which lasted the time period of however long he was fighting Norway. I, I, you can say that, can't you? But then if you are in a relationship that doesn't give you anything, I mean, one way of saying is that you're mourning it, but another is just saying that you don't even know that until, until, it, until death slaps you in the face. I think death uh, arriving wakes her up. Wakes her up. Everyone is, is, is awoken in this play. It feels like the, the death of that man has, has, and certainly in our play, has woken up these people has conjured, the, play, the word conjured comes up again and again and again. It's conjured these people from and, sleep. And is, in, in that through line, do you have, well, this is the, the famous question about characters, right? Do you have a knowing that Claudius did it or not? Not knowing. Not knowing. Kill a king. When he says, yeah, I, madam, you know, being as bad as a brother killing a king, that's, a, that's like, whoa. I don't think, she, no, I, again, I don't see anything. My knowledge of Shakespeare, my knowledge of acting in Shakespeare is if you try and add stuff that he hasn't given you before he gives you the time to do it, then, then you, you lose the, the experience of being so in the moment that, it, again, it, it's a revelation. So it properly wakes you up and it happens to you and therefore it happens to the audience and, and then it's interesting. And then she hates herself for not having known, or, I mean, beyond hate, I mean, just cannot live in her own skin as those revelations. So you have cleft my heart in twain means now I'm getting where I've gone wrong. And I think he understands just how good women are at guilt. We're very good at feeling guilty. <laughs> When guilt arrives on our shoulders, we will we will take that whole mantle on, and, and that's what cleft my heart in twain. It means you've opened me up, and now I really know myself, and now I can't uh, transference of grief. Now she can't live in her own skin. It seems to me when you're in the experience of grief, you feel like you can't be in your own skin. I mean, it's as visceral as, as that, and no one misses it. Yeah. When you talk about um, Shakespeare for inclusive audiences, what does inclusive audiences mean in this context? In this context, well, the, the strip line inclusive audiences is because, uh, as you know, a lot of the work I do is for uh, children with autism, which is not to do with this production of Hamlet. However, it does seem to me that um, even in our modern world, many, many people that I speak to of all ages, all backgrounds feel Shakespeare isn't for them. 
feel that it's people in tights, it'll last three and a half hours long and they won't understand it and it won't be to do with them. <coughs> so I would like to believe that somebody who felt like that could come and see our show and would um, be engaged in it and interested in it. It's, it's as simple as that. But truly, it, it is uh, the inclusivity is people who never are allowed to go to, a, or rather, feel that the theatre is for them, and that's the, the work with autism. Hello. Yes, your 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 mention of of these survivors who survived the camp by shamming death. Mm. Uh, recall the um, killing fields of the Ukraine mm -hmm. during the Nazi occupation, where thousands, many thousands, were killed, and where it's believed there was only one survivor. And she shared death. And that woman was actually an actress huh. who I think had acted in uh, Shakespeare as well. But uh, the question I was going to ask, well, what is the exact significance of the drum kit? Is that actually played? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yes, thank you first. And, and how is that played? And, and, and in the rock and roll cot. <laughs> okay, so at the beginning of our play, uh, we're at this, we have the end of the wedding, as it were. So our Laertes is a drummer. Uh, and he's, as the play starts, the Gertrude and Claudius are dancing and Laertes is drumming and Ophelia is playing her little ukulele and Hamlet is just sitting there, clearly not at the party with his box of photographs. But the party goers are having this great time. We initially had the drum kit there because our Laertes can play the drums and as someone who makes theatre, what you do is you get people in a room and, and you use what you have, you use your raw material. He needs a good drummer. Um, but primarily what I was interested in is what the spur for um, Rogan Peasant Slave would be. So the, our version, our, our equivalent to the speech that the player King gives, that moves the speaker and Hamlet sees him being moved. So in our show, our Laertes is asked by Hamlet to, to play something for him. After he's talked about, um, I have a late but wherefore I have not lost all my mirth, uh, and uh, articulated that, that depression, he just says, play, play, as if he wants to be made to feel better. So our Laertes plays a blistering four or five minute drum solo. Um, and goes quite kind of crazy and cries out because he can't bear the claustrophobia of it anymore. And then finishes, puts his drumsticks down, walks out, and that's the inspiration for Hamlet to say, yeah, this player here with his broken voice, he can do something for absolutely nothing and I can't kill the king. So that's, that's what that is there for. And then in To Be or Not To Be, our Hamlet sits at the drum kit, impotent, Speaks to me or not to be, he can't play the drum, he's not a drummer, he's kind of nothing. So it's like an echo of someone who wouldn't like to be able to even have the power to be creative and he feels that he can't. So that's how he is. So you perhaps have quite a virtuosic drummer there. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, I recommend if you like the drumming, then, and only that, then come and see Which is quite difficult to do a good drum solo. You could ask many a drummer in the room. I agree. No, he's, he's, a, he's an amazing lad. He's only 21, our lad. He's, he's, uh, he's his first job, actually. Um, and he's good. Yeah. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Um, 
Marcus was simply intended to forget that Gertrude doesn't have Hamlet either. Doesn't love him? No, doesn't or have him. Doesn't have him. He's away as well. Yeah, abs- yes, absolutely. So that loneliness. If you, if you, yes. if you add those two absences. Yes, I agree. Um, yes. The question I was going to ask is just uh, picking up your suggestion that uh, since this came out of uh, Ibsen show, you were talking about amalgamating the kind of acting techniques yeah. that you got from Ibsen yeah. and that you have from Czech. And I wondered if you wanted to just elaborate on Yeah, I would happily elaborate on this. It's one of my favourite subjects. So, so as I said, the, the experience of acting in a play by Ibsen is that you, you really get the chance to be in real time uh, in a naturalistic world with relationships that, that you can just that need no almost need no leap of imagination to uh, get under the skin of and the emotional power is in the silence so you can say to somebody in an Ibsen play when did you arrive and then there'll be a silence and then they'll say eight o'clock and what you and it's something what you're, what you're trying to get underneath is what the hell is going on between those two people. Um, and if you get it right, you get this rich experience of being quiet with people on stage, which is clearly what Ibsen was, was inventing and what then all naturalistic dramatists kind of, you know, doff their hat to, uh, Pinter especially. In Shakespeare, you don't ever stop speaking. There are no pauses apart from the very few ones that he has said to make. And I'm a complete stickler for that. I, the, the, the verse has a power, it has a drive, and, and in order to, to get the intellectual and emotional sense, you have to keep speaking. So inside the words is that same magic as is in the silence in Ibsen. And my investigation is where are these? How do you make both of them there? Because what you often get in Shakespeare is actors don't have the time to be quiet, so you, so you get something slightly more surface, because you just have to deliver the language, as opposed to having the experience of being able to feel the pain for your son or your mother or your dead father or whatever it is you're feeling, um, but keep speaking. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and we've just about... Uh, sorry, uh, we've, we, yeah, we, we've kind of got there. I think because Mark and I had that Ibsen experience first, so we knew what we were, we knew the quality that we were after. It makes a lot of sense of some of my misgivings about the symbolism that goes on right there. Oh, really? Yeah. Two surface. Yeah, just this idea that the language will carry you, so you talk to Jupiter as if you were ordering them shopping for the day. Yeah. There's, there's the thing. I mean, the language will carry you, but you've got to have a tsunami going on inside you. To, to, to make sure that that's what it's carrying. Yeah. It's got to be carrying something. It can't just be carrying itself. Then it's just superficial and self-regarding. Good, thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Um, I have a quick question. Uh, particularly, I've been wondering about so we have uh, Polonius and Ophelia. Yes. And Laertes. And um, this scene has been uh, gnawing in my mind. What do you want? Do you, do you have the scene where where Polonius gives advice no. to his children. Uh, no, we don't. Polonius is... is uh, I guess he says the least. Mm. 
of our characters. He doesn't give advice. It, it'll tell you exactly what happens. Um, just after the visitation of the ghost, Laert, all the rest of the family are on stage. Hamlet has left. And Laertes is trying to leave. He's just packing up his drums, actually, and trying to, and saying goodbye. He's asked for permission to go. Ophelia runs in, looking for her brother, finds herself in the midst of not just the brother, but also the three adults, who say, all say, what's the matter? And she's forced to say, Hamlet just came to me, you know, with his hat, no hat upon his head, his stockings down, um, and cried. And because of that, Claudius asks Laertes to stay, doesn't let him leave. So instead of having a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, we turn Laertes into that person. It's actually an amazing part because he never gets to leave the house, so he has to stay. So he becomes the spy, as it were. So we just use the language where normally Claudius is saying, hello, two new characters, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, can you go and talk to Hamlet? He, we, he says that to Laertes. So Laertes is in the midst of going and then goes, okay, I seem to have no choice here. And then it's him that goes to um, Hamlet and says all the stuff about the uh, strumpets, privates, and yeah. that stuff. Um, so Polonius and Claudius are, are in agreement that Laertes should stay, so he never gets the chance to say goodbye because Laertes never goes. Mm. Um, Hi. Donald, you mentioned uh, being very I wondered to what extent you were, uh, as it were, crossing the threshold in, in the way that Hamlet specifically acts into madness. Because, I mean, in a, in a rather witty reply to the cliché question of many, uh, an English lit student, H.L. Uh, Mencken uh, said to the question, is Hamlet mad? Well, of course he is. He's had 6,000 actors for it. <laughs> So, so thanks for asking that. So um, I agree. And, and it's, it's really important that we don't just you know, go, here's a mad person, because I don't think he's mad at all, actually. Um, and the moment that we uh, try and really explore that is this, this invention of ours that he, when he says the play is the thing where in our Catch the Conscience of the King, um, and he has to get the attention of his family in order to play this, this, this mafia game. So he pretends to have a mad kind of tantrum and a mad fit, and he screams in a very, 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 very particularly puts on an antic disposition to get their attention. Um, goes crazy. We were really interested, Mark and I, in... in the acting element of it. Because of this experience that we'd had doing Ghosts and there were performances, certainly when I, as an actor, didn't know whether I, didn't know where I began and when the character stopped. I did have that experience a couple of times. Just this grief kind of of the character and then what I was feeling about what had gone on just did my head in. And Mark was a witness to that. And that is a version of putting on the antique disposition um, 
and it affecting you. And it's quite a dangerous thing to, to do, actually. So we wanted to explore that, so he decides to put on the antic disposition. And the other characters don't know quite what to do. And what we wanted to do was, was, was push the question of even whether Mark the actor could continue with the play. So exactly as you just said, the 6,000 actors, I don't know if I can actually carry on playing Hamlet. We've got the famous Daniel Day-Lewis story, Zini's own dad. Lots of actors have gone so-called mad. All of those questions have been asked and, and, and will continue to be asked. Um, but I think hopefully where we succeed in, in, in not being indulgent is that we very particularly show him deciding to do that in order to see whether his uncle killed his dad. So, I, 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 so it's not uh, at all a sort of... Uh, um, poor old Hamlet. It, it's a it's a very unsentimental uh, exercise, actually. Yeah, thank you. Well, excellent. Um, I will use my prerogative. And final question, because this is sure. what we uh, talked about before. What what's the significance for you? What what, what do you what would you feel about the, the chosen title of huh. Hamlet? Who's there? Why not Hamlet, the antic disposition? Uh, yeah. It. Well, it's the. Uh, we were keen to use the very first words that in the play and the very uh, very last ones in the play. At the end of the play, everyone is dead except for the gravedigger, and the gravedigger looks at the audience and says, Go bid the soldiers shoot, as if this will just carry on and on and on. Um, I, in our play, Hamlet says, Who's there? Um, he's looking at the photographs, it's like he's woken up from this kind of terrible night sweat, and just says, Who's there? Uh, I think it's. I think it is an existential question, and I think if you've been in, uh, well, no, I don't. I think if, if someone has died, you don't know if they're there. Yeah. I think it's as simple as that. I think it, I think we're all haunted. Um, I think the ghosts live with us. We are the dead. I mean, whatever whatever phrase you want to use, I think that. Uh, it's the overriding question, and it is, um, it is all the way through, the, through our play, as he looks at all these people and tries to knock down the kind of wall that he seems to be behind, which is grief, to, to make some communicative uh, connection with them, and he can't quite get there. It's really as simple as that. It's a funny thing with titles. You, you should actually, I, I, I don't regret it, but partly I think people see slightly too much emphasis or put too much emphasis as if we've got some incredible uh, theory behind it. But it's, it's not, it's, it is uh, an investigation of who is there, but not just within our families, but within ourselves. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. This is, uh, as, as always, a very touching Join me in, in thanking the fantastic Kelly Hunter for it.